Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We may not have an overall recession. We're having a rolling recession. The economy overall looks pretty strong, at least when it comes to jobs. The financial stories that shape our world. Three major regional bank failures sent shockwaves through the banking system. We're all trying to figure out what to make of generative AI. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Welcome now, Dr. Paul Krugman. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Glenn Hubbard of the Columbia Business School. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A war intensifies, an election hints at what lies ahead, a startup darling goes bankrupt, and a king lays out his commitment to fight inflation. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Nobel laureate Michael Spence on the promise of generative AI. Generative AI is mainly, not exclusively, but mainly going to turn out to be a powerful digital assistant. Rock Creek's Afsani Beshloss explains how to make money investing in climate in China. While a lot of countries in the West talked about it, the Chinese actually became more than 80% of solar. And Melissa Carney of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group on building economic resilience by addressing the deficit. It's important that people are now paying attention to this. I mean, we're really on an unsustainable path. Global Wall Street spent another week watching Israel's war with Hamas unfold as Israeli forces surrounded Gaza City and the fighting intensified. Ground operations by the Israel Defense Forces and continued bombardments are hitting civilians. At the same time, Hamas and other militants use civilians as human shields and continue to launch rockets indiscriminately towards Israel. And the United States joined much of the rest of the world in calling for a humanitarian pause. I don't think, you know, Israel is, is interested in a ceasefire at this point, uh, but they are perhaps willing to have what we do call humanitarian pauses. 
Off-year elections in Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia tipped decidedly toward the Democrats. What's fascinating about this series of elections and the ones we had in November of 2022 uh, for the midterm election is that they, they're saying the same thing. Suggesting maybe that abortion rights could play a role in the presidential election less than one year away. If you look at from the midterms to last night, from California to Kansas, um, Ohio to, to Virginia, the voters said, look, the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. In two short years, the real estate startup WeWork went from a huge potential IPO to a SPAC to bankruptcy, costing billions in the process. As a company, we need to accept this reality and also we we'll need to learn the lesson from this for our future investment activity. On Wednesday, the picket lines came down in Hollywood as the studios reached a tentative agreement with SAG-AFTRA, raising hopes that movies and TV shows would get back into production. This sends a very clear message that unions work, labor movements work. And no less than the King of England weighed in on the need to fight for an economic soft landing. My government will continue to take action to bring down inflation, to ease the cost of living for families, and help businesses fund new jobs and investments. And then, after the equity markets closed on Friday, Moody's cut the U.S. credit outlook to negative as the country looks at yet another government funding deadline next Friday. Through the week, the bond market was on something of a roller coaster, with the yield on the 10-year ranging as low as 4.47, and then it shot up again late Friday after the Moody's news to end the week at 4.65. Stocks were a bit more upbeat as the S&P 500 added another 1.3% to come within 30 points of the year-end median number of 4435 that our Bloomberg elves are projecting right now. While the Nasdaq gained nearly 2.4%. To explain it all to us, we welcome back now Sanal Desai. She is Franklin Templeton, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income. Sanal, thank you so much for being back with us. So before we get to what happened overall in the week, what about there right at the end on Friday with the mm -hmm. Moody's downgrade of U.S. credit? How material is that? So, you know, material, if they're talking about does it have an important impact on people's desire or ability to hold U.S. debt, it's not going to be so important. But as a signal of how dysfunctional the U.S. Uh, US policymaking is right now, it's very important, I'd say. I mean, it's a reminder that we are looking at uh, an extremely serious fiscal problem between the debt and the deficit. And the way we are operating right now is not very reasonable. So it's a good reminder that uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal policy is an issue and markets should pay potentially more attention than they are to fiscal issues. And it comes against the backdrop of a fair amount of volatility in your neck of the woods, that is fixed income. We saw again this week the ups and downs. They may not have been quite as big, the amplitude may be a little bit less than it has been, but it's still a fair amount of volatility because I'm not sure the markets know where it's going. I think that actually if you look at what's happening with markets, uh, what we saw last week really was uh, once again, we've, we've, we've been to this show, David, right? We've done this before many times over the last year and a half. You have, uh, you have a Fed meeting, the market hears what it wants to hear from what the Fed is saying, and 
runs with it. So what I think that Jay Powell was trying to do, uh, not this week, but the week before, was to give the market a gentle nudge in the direction of a slightly more dovish message. The market took that slightly dovish message and simply ran with it. We had a close to 40 basis points rally in the tenure on the back of the Fed, on the back of slightly different than anticipated uh, schedule from Treasury in terms of issuance, and a slightly softer job market report. The three of them together do not change enough of what's happening on the ground to justify the type of rally we saw. And indeed, this week we've seen a bit of a sell-off, that roller coaster you were talking about. I think the market's still really, really focused on trying to figure out whether the Fed or the Treasury can swoop in and make it all okay again so that rates can rally and we can go back to the races. Given that situation, now, what's an investor to do? How do you try to protect yourself and actually make some money in this environment right now? Cash is actually worth something now, or yeah. near cash is worth something. But what do you do with your bond portfolio? Let's talk about that specifically. So actually, you know, you're right. Cash has been very good, good for people this year. You're getting a very good, a very good, uh, good return on cash. However, as we get towards the end of this year, I said that I've been saying for a while that the Fed is likely to maintain higher rates for somewhat longer than the market is anticipating. We're not getting ready. We, uh, we are certainly not forecasting 100 basis points of rate cuts starting already from the middle of next year, as is being now priced by the market. Market. Nonetheless, as we get towards the next several months, I think the time to start moving away from that very, very short duration and cash and fixed income, it's coming. Because we are looking, once you get 10 years at round five, once you look at high quality investment grade credits and mortgages, areas like this are yielding over 6%. These are actually pretty attractive, uh, attractive yields to start start slowly averaging into a little bit of duration is how I would put it. I don't think we chase the yield because the type of volatility we've seen, it's not gone away. I do think we're going to probably see five again. So there's time to start factoring that in. But averaging in a true fixed income portfolio where you start adding a little bit of duration it's, it's a good idea to do a right now, a, a, around now, over the next three months, over the next six months. And uh, I'm looking forward to fixed income actually playing that traditional role of delivering income rather than equity-like returns. Looking at next year, I'm not looking for massive capital gains out of fixed income. What about it's outside more the United States? Sorry, what about outside the United States, Europe, Japan? So, that, so that's a really interesting point. So in Europe, we actually think that the underlying growth fundamentals make duration plays in Europe potentially more attractive even than the US. So that's one area because growth in, in the euro area is simply not as well supported as it continues to be in the US. We're slowing in the US, but we're starting from a very good place. Japan, to me, is the really fascinating one because Japan and Japanese investors have actually been a major source of support for the long end of the U.S. yield curve because rates have been so low and Japan within the G3 
the, G, uh, the BOJ is very much behind the Fed and the ECB in terms of changing its monetary policy stance. Thank you so much to Sanal. To Saig. Always great to have you with us. She's from Franklin Templeton. Coming up, what generative AI will mean for our jobs and whether we get to decide. The Nobel laureate Michael Spence of Stanford. You can influence the direction of technology and, and, and development, and I think, you know, with incentives and so on, and it should be influenced in the direction of uh, collaboration and, and augmentation. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We know it's coming and we're told it's going to be big, but what generative AI will mean to our economy and our lives is yet to be determined, including what it will be due to jobs and productivity. For his analysis, we welcome now Michael Spence. He's Nobel Prize winner in economics, Dean Emeritus of the Stanford Business School, and co-author with Gordon Brown and Mohamed Alarian of Permacrisis, a plan to fix a fractured world. So, Dr. Spence, thank you so much for being with us. You've written an article, co-authored an article in Foreign Affairs, specifically the coming AI economic revolution. So you've thought through these things. First of all, start with what the challenges are that we have in terms of size of workforce and productivity that perhaps AI could help us on. So we have a lot of what, I, what we call secular headwinds to growth. So we lived for three decades, David, in a world that produced massive amounts of incremental productive capacity, mainly in the emerging economies. As a result, we had a deflationary kind of, you know, pattern in the economy of inflation wasn't much of a problem um, and, and all that. That's That force is fading rapidly. And then you've got aging in the global economy. Uh, more than 75 percent of the global economy is in a, a serious pattern of aging, you know, declining workforces in some cases. You have big changes in labor market behavior. You have shortages in all the major employment sectors in, in, in the American economy, uh, the big ones. 
Um, and then, and then you know, you have geopolitical tensions and shocks coming from multiple sources like pandemics, climate, and a pattern of diversification initiated both by businesses, you know, in pursuit of kind of resilience and longer term, you know, profitability, but also now by by economic policy and multiple jurisdictions. And when you combine all those forces uh, and the declining productivity trend, which has been fairly dramatic in the last decade, that you've got a, a world that switched relatively rapidly from, you know, demand constraint to supply constraint growth patterns. And so we're looking for solutions to the supply side uh, issues that are that are creating not only problems for growth, but, you know, problems for uh, the reappearance of inflation, you know, for higher interest rates, higher lower valuations, um, higher costs of capital and so on. And we're doing it in an environment where we have to make enormous investments in things like sustainability. So it's a when when I stand back and look at it, it's a, you know it's a big challenge, and and so that led me and others to try to start looking for well, what tools and technologies do we have to try to solve this problem? Uh, we all lived through something of a digital revolution in the late '90s and the early aughts in the move to the internet, and there was a real growth impetus from that, as I recall. In what ways does this new move to digital revolution through AI compare to that? Maybe it's similar to, or maybe different from. So the, the, we did get a productivity surge. It came, you know, in the late 1990s after everybody got access to the internet, and the World Wide Web came in, you know, into its own. Um, and and that lasted into the early 2000s. And and some of that is ongoing, you know, the um, digitalization of supply chains and so on. Um, that that was pretty powerful, uh, and it it had um, noticeable effects. It produced a, a decline in middle class jobs in in the advanced economies like like ours. Um, it produced what David Autor calls job and income polarization. There was a lot of automation in it. Um, you know, we automated things like, you know, the keeping of the general ledger. Most of the most of the information systems that a corporation runs on are now sort of digital and, and fairly automated um, and so on. So, we, you know, it was powerful, but um, but it feels to me at least uh, very different from the current round. One of the things you point out in your paper uh, in Foreign Affairs is the, the effect that this new generative AI could have on so-called knowledge economy, which is different from the automation you referred to from the internet. Uh, and that may well affect a different strata of jobs, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the knowledge economy, when you think about it carefully, kind of runs through and across the entire economy. So even <clears throat> even in what we we think of as sectors that are sort of largely blue collar, you know, there's a fair amount of knowledge, you know, that goes into these things, skills, knowledge, and so on. I mean, take something like nursing. Um, you know, nurses are pretty highly trained people. They have to respond in intelligent ways to the signals they get from, uh, you know, the equipment that, that patients are, are, are using and that, that they're looking after and so on. But, you know, but yes, I mean, um, the CEO of, of Google, when asked, you know, where is this going to have its immediate impact? It's going to be in the knowledge economy. But I, but I think, you know, we tend to think of that as sort of white collar work. Uh, and and there's an element of truth in that. But I think it actually does run right across the entire economy, maybe not to the same depth in every sector, um, but but nevertheless. 
it's uh, very broad-based. Do we have a sense, and I understand this may not be determinate, I mean, that is to say it may differ based on what we do, but do we have a sense of the extent to which this generative AI will displace jobs, they will go away, as opposed to transform jobs? Look, I mean, we're in a period of um, uh, intense exploration and experimentation. So. You know, people often say, you know, that it's important to acknowledge, you know, real uncertainty <laughs> when you're in the early stages of this. And that's certainly characteristic of this. Having said that, James and I, my, our best guess is that generative AI is mainly, not exclusively, but mainly going to turn out to be, uh, you know, a, a powerful digital assistant. One of the points you make in the paper is that, as I say, this is not predestined. To some extent, how this ends up depends upon us and what we decide to do about right. it. Uh, explain yeah. to us about what you think needs to be done or should be done so that we get the most good out of generative AI. And, as a sub-point, how much of that can be trusted to the markets as opposed to governments? So, you know, I think the markets and government and attitudes and what and biases, you know, are all part of the mix. So. I think the first order of business is to is to avoid what Eric Bernelson calls that in a, an influential paper, um, the, the Turing trap. So Alan Turing proposed that we evaluate <clears throat> progress with digital machines by using the following test: Can we build a machine that interacts with a human, and the human thinks that it's interacting with another human? It's a fairly small step. Um, and this is common in the AI world, to evaluate progress in AI by determining how well machines do relative to human performance. So they, we do that in language recognition, we do it in image recognition, which is a huge breakthrough in the, you know, in the last six, seven years. Um, and we do it you know, with the generative AI. Does the generative AI do better than the average human on the LSAT, the law school aptitude test? Um, that's okay. But there's a very small step from that to thinking that, you know, well, once the machine passes the human, why don't we get rid of the human? Uh, and that leads you to what you might call the automation bias. And that I think we do have to resist. And that that's not government, that's not business, that's not any particular sector, it's just the way we think about it. So I think that's step one. Um, step two is, you know, you can influence the direction of technology and, and, and development and I think you know with incentives and so on and it should be influenced in the direction of uh, collaboration and, and augmentation and then third with the way James and I thought of it we don't want to repeat um, that pattern of you know sort of high high adoption rates um, and and very low adoption rates that we saw in earlier rounds of digital uh, you know adoption. Dr. Spence, thank you so much for being here on Wall Street Week. Really appreciate it. That's Dr. Michael Spence of the Stanford Business School. Coming up as we count down the months until next year's elections, our colleague Michael McKee takes us back through what happened to some other incumbent presidents when the economy was in flux. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. 
So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. China and climate investing, two destinations that were once all the rage. If I had to bet on one market or the other over the next several years, uh, I would bet on China's. If you're a global investor, you've got to be watching and investing here in China. ESG investing has gone from niche to mainstream. We're integrating ESG, environmental, social, and governance into every aspect of our investment decisions and across our investment portfolios. But they recently have given up some of their momentum as foreign direct investment in China has dropped off. The big question will be whether Xi Jinping pivots and focuses more on market opening and creating the confidence and the conditions to continue to attract foreign business, which is necessary if he's going to continue to grow his economy. He can't do it without foreign business being present. And green investing has gotten increasingly controversial. The energy transition is very much misguided, in my opinion. It's based on politics and emotion. It's not based on science and fact. We're really, all we're doing is we're substituting one form of mineral extraction for another. But now there's reason to take a second look, as technology may be taking the place of real estate in the Chinese economy. Yes, there are excesses in parts of the Chinese economy in real estate, but their technological prowess is, 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 uh, is really strong. The entire clean energy economy cannot exist without Chinese components and Chinese raw materials. And China races ahead of the West in extracting the minerals that drive the move away from carbon. China's been developing this industry for, for 20 or 30 years, so they're really ahead of most uh, Western democracies. It's now important for us to make sure we have diversified supply chains, because no matter what the product, whether it's critical minerals or rare earths, having options around where you get these things are going to be really important. Leading Western investors to take a second look at parts of the Chinese economy that may be opportunities even as other parts slow down. What I would say is I think the story on what's growing in China is actually misunderstood, right? One is that housing, I think people know that it's, it's not growing, and I think that's been well documented. What they're mis missing, though, is the growth drivers. What you're seeing is a huge growth surge in the decarbonization or the energy transition.
to give us her sense of investing in China and investing in green at the same time, we welcome back a very special friend of Wall Street Week. She is Afsani Beshlos of Rock Creek. Welcome back. Great to have you, Afsani. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So uh, in general, you hear people are less enthusiastic these days about investing in China. But what about investing in climate in China? Right. So you're absolutely right, David. Um, investing in China, to, you put it very nicely, but I think a lot of people are taking out their money from China. We've seen now from FDI going down to uh, equity flows going out to companies repa repatriating their profits uh, in China. Um, and a lot of people are actually not even making overt noises that there are because they want to build the next factory somewhere else before they say they're taking it out. So I think, if anything, what we've seen is the beginning of a process of reducing um, outside money going into China. And of course, the biggest problems, uh, we've talked about this before, is the demographics, the, the big, um, uh, big loans that the banks have, and also the fact that people are still saving so much and not consuming. And that has not changed. Even yesterday's numbers showed there's deflation in, um, in the consumer area. So coming to the whole area of green energy, Interestingly, while a lot of countries in the West talked about it, the Chinese actually became more than 80% of solar, production, uh, solar um, power production. When people talked about EV, they're now 50% of EV exports into the world, uh, apart from also uh, buying EVs in China. So there is this contradiction in the broader economy in China. And I think while we are still discussing whether, um, whether there is you know, ESG or whether whether um, whether the, we should have renewable energy or not, they're not really looking at ESG. They're just looking at economics. They're looking at the fact that that these um, these um, EVs and and solar energy is cheaper. They are big. They have huge reliance themselves on imported oil and coal. So from their own point in terms of geopolitically, they have made a bet. Plus, when they went to all the COP meetings. They heard loud and clear that the West is talking about this. The interesting thing is they did more than, than the West in terms of investments in this area. So, Sonny, on this program before, you said it's the second largest economy in the world. You can't talk about just ignoring China. Yes. You have to deal with China. So if you're going to have to deal with China as an investor, some of the issues you identify are directly or indirectly tied to the government. Even consumer purchasing, in part, is because of a loss of confidence, it appears. Certainly in the tech sector, because of what the Chinese government is doing. But given what you just said about climate, is that a relatively safer sector because the Chinese government is so committed to the area? So Chinese government is committed. It's still continuing to invest a lot in this area. But at the same time, as Janet Yellen said in her piece yesterday, they're also subsidizing uh, a lot the, um, the energy sector. So what they have done with new sectors, as China has entered any new sector, whether it was originally tech, whether it was infrastructure, whether it is now clean energy, huge subsidies going into it. So if you can find companies that are well run, that are profitable, I think it's a great area just because they are, um, they are very good. But you have to be very careful to invest in companies that are really riding the low wage, uh, the, the subsidized wage and subsidized, um, subsidized loans from the government. And given what's going on with the stock market over there, do you want to look at private companies rather than publicly traded companies? So I think maybe a few years ago, yes. But I think in private investments, the biggest issue is the rule of law. 
and certainty of whether you can take your money out. In, if you invested today in a private investment, you would assume you're taking your money out maybe 10 years, maybe later. So I think um, what the environment that President Xi has created, unfortunately, makes people much less comfortable making private investments. If anything, Chinese very successful private investors and tech uh, and venture investors are starting to invest much more in Chinese companies that are investing outside of China or in Japan because they are concerned themselves that if they become too successful, the fate of Jack Ma and others may, uh, may fall on them. But also, if they're not super successful, then what's the point? So the entrepreneurial spirit, which has been super important, really, in the last 20 years in China, particularly the last 10 years, I think that, has, that is waning. And it is, I think, something to really watch for any kind of investment in China. Talk about more globally. We have uh, COP28 coming up at the end of this month now. And there are discussions going on even as we speak. This week there were discussions between the US and China to try to come to terms on some basic issues, uh, including funding for some of the lower income countries yes. to be able to deal with it. If in fact, and it's a big if, if the United States and China could come to terms, if COP28 could come up with some meaningful global, uh, really, agreements, uh, would that be an investment opportunity potentially? Because it could really jumpstart a lot of the green economy. I think it would be really, really helpful if there was agreement. And I think starting with next week's meetings, the APEC meetings here uh, with a lot of Asian leaders in uh, the US, that will be sort of the start of those conversations. And I think we should watch those to see what kind of agreements or lack of agreements there are next week in uh, terms of, um, in terms of uh, climate, because that is military and uh, climate are the two areas that people are looking for different kinds of agreements next week. So if that happens, I think we can be hopeful that when we get to COP, there'll be more positive, um, a more positive environment for some sort of agreement. My sense, though, is that um, there is the economics of uh, renewable energy has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it, for example, on any given day in Texas versus California, one is ahead of the other in terms of solar production of power. So that is all based on economics, not politics um, of ESG or all the other words that we hear. So if we're taking that line, if we're going to um, a lot of other countries, you're seeing that people want to, uh, want to move to EV cars just because they're cheaper at the moment in terms of running them. So if you look at that, it will be the consumers, it will be the private sector that I think will be bigger leaders in this. Uh, public sector leaders have not really been, well, lots of um, you know, speeches have been made, have been uh, less, uh, less helpful in terms of executing. Afsani, always wonderful to have you on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much. That's Afsani Bachelas of Rock Creek. Coming up, building a more resilient economy. We talk with Aspen Economic Strategy Group Director Melissa Carney about the subject of this year's meetings. These reforms really need to have bipartisan buy-in so they're lasting. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Finally, one more thought. Children cannot rest till they get rid of their money, or as we say, it burns in their pockets. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, that's the first reference to money burning holes in pockets, and it dates back to 1768. 
These days, it seems that there are quite a few children with burning pockets, starting with WeWork. Only two short years ago, investors, including the legendary Masayoshi Son, couldn't wait to get money into the pockets of the real estate startup. And JP Morgan couldn't wait to get tens of millions of dollars into the pockets of founder Adam Newman to buy luxury homes. They have a long-standing relationship with Adam Newman himself. So JP Morgan has been leading something akin to a margin loan, where he's been taking out loans based on his private stock. But then questions were raised about the WeWork business plan. And a massive IPO turned into a much more modest Back. It had to undergo a major restructuring. Well, that restructuring has just been complete. It did go public via SPAC in October of 2021. Sandy Mathrani took over, and he did try to right the ship. And now even that's gone by the wayside, as WeWork made it official and declared bankruptcy this week, leaving Masayoshi Son of SoftBank about $11.5 billion lighter in his pockets. WeWork, <laughs> at its peak, 2019. Here's a company that gets valued in private markets of, what, $47 billion? And here we are four years later and the company's filing for bankruptcy. And in the meantime, we know based on reports that Adam Newman, the founder of the company, has managed to take in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. 20 years ago, Donald Trump, long before he was president, was eager to get money into his own pockets to buy the Doral Golf Club in Florida, as well as a hotel and skyscraper in Chicago. And Deutsche Bank seemed eager to give him his wish loaning him a total of $232 million, backed by his telling them he had assets worth $4.3 billion. A New York State judge ruled that his assets were actually worth far less. And this week, Mr. Trump appeared before a New York City court deciding how much he owes in damages, which may leave a bit less money in the former president's pockets, despite his spending much of his time on the witness stand, badgering counsel and even the judge himself. But in the end, it may all have been worth it. As Bloomberg reported this week that Mr. Trump's net worth has actually gone up half a billion dollars since he left office. And that brings us to what may be the biggest pockets of all. We learned this week that the most famous investor of them all, Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, has amassed a record $157 billion in cash, an amount that would burn a hole in just about anyone's pockets. It appears that Mr. Buffett can't find any deals that make sense at the prices on offer, leading us to wonder how long he can wait before deploying some of that huge pile of dry powder. I am curious about that cash pile. When do you think, Gregory, it will be the right time to really try to deploy a big chunk of that $157 billion? But if we've learned anything at all about Warren Buffett, it's that he never feels the burn of money in his big pocket. He'd rather keep it where it is than invest in things like WeWorks or loans to real estate developers with uneven records. I love a uh, sausage muffin with egg and cheese. 317 is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. The market's down this morning, so I think I'll pass up the 317 and go with the 295. That's why he's Warren Buffett, and the rest of us are not. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.